We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1990's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. <laughs> That's a mouthful to say. Uh, directed and written by Peter Greenaway. Here's a clip. I'm not going with him. He sweats and stinks. And he can't make it. Oh, that's you. Shut your oar up, Corey. Like Georgie, you mean. Shut up. You're talking about Georgie. You're a very fine woman. She's never let me down. You must be joking. Just shut up, Pat. Oh, Come on, Corey. She's upset. What do you mean, I must be joking? Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of that. Don't do that to a woman. I'll do what I like to a woman. That's your bloody trouble. No wonder Georgie looks like she does. No wonder she hates your guts. What are you talking about? No wonder she screws around. What? You're so bloody blind, you loudmouth pig, you'd never even know. Uh, shut up, Pat! She's wavering. I'm not. I saw them. It's all right. Georgie and that Jew. What Jew? That bloke who sits over there, reading. Haven't you noticed? They always go off to the John together. You what? Why do you think Georgie's been spending so much time in the John? You blind bat. She doesn't have the shits every five minutes. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that was the clip from The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Again, written and directed by Peter Greenaway and starring Helen Mirren and Michael Gambone. Uh, Michael Gambone is a sort of, I guess you would say, a small-time gangster, thug, mafia guy, something like that. And Helen Mirren is his wife. And there's also a cook and a lover. Uh, all right, joining me today, of course, is Ricky D. And also joining us is uh, Goomba Stomp editor Mike Warby. Good day, gentlemen. All right, so Rick, this uh, this was your choice. And of course, we always ask this at the beginning of the po podcast. So why did you choose this film? There's a lot of reasons. First of all, I really do think this is a masterpiece. And way back when we started the podcast, we were talking like 10 years ago. One of the very first shows we ever recorded was a Peter Greenaway special. And someone, someone, I don't know who, a listener, actually promoted the the podcast, like recommended us to Internet Movie Database. And this was back in the days when Internet Movie Database had the top 10 hit list on the front page. I don't know if you guys remember this. So if you would land on the front page of Internet Movie Database in the hit list, the top 10 recommendations of the week, you would get mad traffic. So we landed on the hit list three times in one month, the first time being our Peter Greenaway special. And our website crashed because by the time noon came around, because I think, I think they refreshed the, the homepage every morning. So like three hours later, by the time it hit like noon, like lunchtime, our website had crashed and we had 85,000 downloads on our podcasts. And so I was like, you know what? It's been a long time since we talked about Peter Greenaway. And it's one of our most popular episodes ever. People loved it. So we should revisit his movies. 
Um, I don't necessarily love all of his movies, but for me, he's like the art house auteur of the UK. And despite never reaching mainstream success, I don't know why, but when I was in college, I became fascinated with his movies and mostly because of this film, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. And there's a lot of ways you can read into the movie. A lot of people have their own interpretation of what the movie is about, which is great because that, you know, a lot of great art, a lot of great movies, uh, you could walk away thinking something entirely different than someone else, right? That just makes great art great. But for me, like, I just think it's an amazing revenge thriller. Like, it's one of the best revenge films I've ever seen. So, yes, it's a combination of a hard-hitting political and social satire and a feminist revenge thriller. But it's really the revenge aspect of it that I like. Because the thing about Peter Greenaway, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, is he's a filmmaker that's really not interested in traditional storytelling when it comes to making movies. He's more interested in telling a story through his images because he used to be a painter. And there's this great interview with Peter Greenaway on YouTube and someone asks him, why did you start making movies? You know, you used to be a painter. Why move away from painting to make movies? And he said, he said, I decided I want to make movies when I realized that painting doesn't come with a soundtrack. And I thought that was a really really like interesting quote because like one of the things I love about movies is how a filmmaker can tell a story through the images. And I always say time and time again on this podcast that for me personally, I think sound is what really gets the emotions out of the viewer. Like if you, if you remove a soundtrack from a movie, you might not have the same emotional reaction of watching a scene as you would with the soundtrack. Right? Yeah. So there's all of these things that I just love about, this specific movie because this is the movie that really made me and we'll talk about this later in a podcast so i'm going to get you guys a cut in soon but it's the movie that really made me understand the use of color in movies and you fast forward like 20 years later or 30 years later i don't know when when exactly breaking bad came out but you know everyone was talking about the the use of color in a, in a tv show like breaking bad or the way wes anderson uh, directs his films and his images and the colors that he uses and the way he frames his shots and the tracking shots. And I'm like, yeah, you know where he, he got all of his ideas from Peter Greenaway. Peter Greenaway inspired and influenced so many of these filmmakers moving forward that a lot of these films and TV shows, like you look at it and you're like, yeah, I've seen all of this done like 30, 20 years prior in a Peter Greenaway film. And I will say this, this is not a movie that many people will want to watch and like, and it's a movie that I don't tend to recommend because it's shocking to say the least. But the one thing about this movie though, is it lets the viewer know right from the opening scene, which it reminds me a lot of a clockwork orange, but I think if you can't get past that first scene, it's okay. You know, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to feel bad. This movie is not for you. But at least it, it, it lets the viewer know right from the beginning that if you don't want to watch this, just tune out now. Get your money back. Get a refund. Go watch a different movie. Yeah, I suppose it, it has everything to do with your ability to withstand some cruelty. I didn't find this movie to be very shocking, personally. And I was actually surprised that it had an NC-17 rating. Uh, and that it originally released unrated. I didn't really see a whole lot in it that would warrant that given other movies that we've seen that have gotten a lesser rating before, but it's also a sign of the times back when it released. 1990. Yeah. 
late eighties, early nineties, people were a little more touchy. Um, there's the note, there's like the political establishment notes that people could be offended by this just for that reason alone. There's, I think, I can't remember if it's, is there, is there piss eating or shit eating at some point in this movie? Not eating. It was. Or does someone just get pissed on? Okay. Yeah. I, it's been about 10 years since I've seen this movie. So some of it's not totally fresh in my mind. Just to refresh your memory, the opening scene, basically, I believe it's the former owner of the restaurant. He is uh, sort of like teased and somewhat beaten and stripped nude. And they take dog poo and they basically smear him with the dog poo. So that's how the movie opens up. So right away, you know, when I, I remember when I first watched this movie, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to hate this movie. I'm going to hate it. Like, I just like I, I didn't think it would be a movie for me. And it's not an easy watch. Like, you're right, Patrick. It's not violent in the sense like it's like it's not like a, a horror film. It's not like Serbian film. It, it depends. I mean, I never personally found it disturbing, not even in the slightest, like even the end. And we can get we're obviously in full spoiler more here, here but there are, is some cannibalism at the end. And even that I didn't find to be particularly shocking. And it's mostly because of the tone the Greenaway sets. It all feels it. No, nothing plays realistic in the slightest. It's all extremely artsy. Um, so I never at any point thought like I w- was shocked. I was just watching images on the screen. So it didn't affect me. I honestly or I'll get this out of the way right off the bat. Like I didn't connect with this movie at all. I felt zero emotions watching it. <laughs> like I didn't dislike it. And I thought Michael Gambone was amazing. In it, and we'll obviously get around to him later. Um, but yeah, for me, it didn't have this movie, whatever the desired effect. I'm, that's why I'm really curious to hear from you guys, because uh, you're both big fans of this movie. I just didn't connect in any emotional way at all. And that includes even the use of color, which, I mean, I I, I, I noticed it for sure. I noticed that he was doing something, but at no point did I get a sense of what the purpose was. So I, I'm going to be I'm going to kind of be feeling you guys out here you guys can maybe explain to me or, or help me along here as to what maybe some of the intentions were behind this i i think if i could just use one more quote from peter greenaway he once said we do not need more text-based cinema what we need is more image-based cinema and so again you got to realize that he is trying to make movies purposely different than everyone else and he's really um you know he's really focused on the the visuals and the images um, in terms of an emotional reaction, well, I guess for me personally, like I did have uh, an emotional reaction to the movie, specifically the main character played by Helen Mirren, because we start the movie where she's married to the now owner of the restaurant, who's like this rich dude who's just a terrible, terrible person, right? He treats everyone like crap. He abuses her. We watch her physically get abused multiple times throughout the film, physically, verbally abused. And you just, you know, anyone would want, like if if this was someone you actually saw in a restaurant in real life, you would feel sorry for her and you would want her to get away from this man. And you realize that there's, it's complicated and maybe it's not as easy for for her to run away from him. And we do learn towards the end of the movie that she did try to escape multiple times, but somehow she ends, she ended up back because he would hire someone to, to, to kid, kidnap her and bring her back, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's complicated, right? But, but the thing is that this is a revenge film and in the end she gets her revenge. And what I like about her character is we do see a, a transformation and we do see her adapt and when it comes to the colors, that's the thing about the colors. Like 
you know, there's the colors of the rooms and there's the colors of the costumes they wear. And if you look specifically at the characters who don't necessarily make it out alive towards the end of the film, they don't really change their outfits in terms of like the colors they wear. And so it's like it's like in, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, this would be really annoying. But somehow Peter Greenaway sort of like pulls it off. So her character, Georgie, she is always constantly changing and adapting to the situations because she has to in order to survive because she is a lady, a woman who's trying to survive this terrible relationship where she's being physically and mentally abused. And so you will see shots of her, for example, walking into a washroom and she's wearing, say, the dress, the dress that she's wearing, the color is red. And when she walks into the uh, into the washroom, the color of the dress changes to white. The color of her dress will change and adapt to the color of the room. So it's just a way for, I guess, Peter Greenaway, the director, to kind of like emphasize how she really needs to adapt in order to survive. <clears throat> and he shows this in how she dresses, but also in her performance. I do want to point this out that it's not just her clothes that change, though. Michael Gambon's character, uh, Spica, uh, he, his clothes also change. So I, I did a little reading up on this, and apparently there were color schemes for each room. So the main part of the restaurant was red, and, you know, Gambon's vest would be red in, the, in those scenes. And then when he walks in the kitchen, it's green, because green was the color scheming for the kitchen. And anybody who went into the bathroom had to have white on. And then anybody who was outside, the outside was was blue. So it's multiple characters because uh, you see when he follows her from the restaurant into the kitchen. I mean, I noticed this as I was watching it that his his vest turned green instead of the red one that he wore outside. So that to me, that's where I was trying to figure out. Okay, what is he trying to say here? I don't really know. I wasn't sure necessarily that every one of those decisions was meant to be a statement, but. Like, you have to take that with a grain of salt, because I never saw this movie as this big political allegory. I just watched it as it was and kind of enjoyed this movie as a revenge thriller. But I think some of these choices might just be aesthetic choices. Like, this looks the best here. Like, I don't want to sound too passe, but I think sometimes it really was just like, this looks the best in this particular situation. So let's adapt these costumes to these um, sort of palettes. I do not think so. I think Peter Greenway is one of those filmmakers where he 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 get he goes crazy over every single little detail. Uh, but the thing is, if you look at the central character, not the central character, one of the main characters, Michael, who she has an affair with, he usually wears a sort of like orange and brown color, and he never changes his look throughout the whole entire film. To the point where even his apartment is drenched in this orange earthy tone and he doesn't survive in the end like because he doesn't really he's the intellectual and he will you know he tries to use his knowledge to sort of like survive and whatever but in the end he doesn't really adapt to situations and in the end they, they do kill him right but i don't know like you mentioned the politics and I did not grow up in the UK in the early 80s, so the political allegory went right over my head also. But it doesn't really matter because Michael Gambone's character uh, is a stand-in for any sort of like corrupt rich businessman or government leader or prime minister or president. I mean, you're, you're talking about a movie that really focuses on like food, right? Food and eating. There's, uh, there's, this, um, there's cutaway shots between sex and them eating like you'll notice that food is used in a manner of symbolism uh for example the slicing of cucumbers or cauliflowers and the splitting of peppers is intercut with helen mirren and alan howard's lovemaking uh and of course the, the the food eating scenes are also intercut with scenes of violence right so again when it comes to the allegory of margaret thatcher and 
the UK, it went right over my head too, because, you know, I grew up in Canada and I don't know much about it. But at the end of the day, this character is just this really greedy, rich person. And so put aside the politics, right? The themes and allegories are universal. You don't necessarily have to catch on to the specific references of the UK politics. It's just the film is, I guess what I'm trying to say here is the film is as much about the appetite of greed as it is about anything else, right? And Greenaway never specifically said it was about that. That's just what people have read into it over the years based on the rage, the sort of rage and the fury and like the indignation behind this movie. And like, I don't know, like, I, I would I would hesitate to say it's the best revenge thriller ever because my favorite revenge thriller is still Old Boy, but this is one of the all time great revenge thrillers because because this this Michael Gambon character is such a piece of shit throughout the entire movie. You mentioned that he's rich and greedy. He's also incredibly rude. He's violent. He's distasteful. He's a pig. He's a glutton. He's he's like he's 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 like the ultimate piece of shit. And you watch him for this entire movie just being a piece of shit. And then it's so satisfying. Like Patrick said, I think I felt like he deserved more than that. Um, but his comeuppance, at least he gets a comeuppance. You know? He's and a whore, I think. That, and that that's like that's the worst attribute about him. We've all seen plenty of vile creatures in movies before, and the, the acts of violence that he commits are you know they're on par or or lesser than many that we've seen in in other mobster movies or you know whatever. Uh, villains have committed terribly violent and cruel acts for a long time, but I think the the main striking thing about him is that he's an absolute bore. He never shuts up. He keeps talking and talking and talking and believes that he has something important to say. He's just spewing words out of his mouth. And it's notable that before you ever see him in a scene, you always hear him first. The camera does never cut to him and he's talking the camera always shows the restaurant or whatever location he's going to be in and you hear him first it's like you can never get away that's a good point constantly spouting you'll hear him a mile away so i think that's what the main drive behind his sort of uh i don't know his his villainy is that he is one of those people that believes that his opinion and what he has to say is more important than anything else in the world. And so and, he just keeps on talking. And because he's been, he, because he's, just, he's such a like despot, because he's so like, he's basically a fascist. And people have allowed him, because he's such a piece of shit, people have allowed him to get this idea about himself more. Mm. And so it's become, it's become this enduring characteristic because no, everybody's too afraid to challenge him, which is, again, what makes the end of the movie so satisfying to see all these characters come together that he's wronged over the years to finally watch him get him get his comeuppance. Exactly. And what makes a good movie villain? It's the actor. I mean, you can give credit to the screenplay and the director, but at the end of the day, it's the actor. The greatest movie villains are played by amazing actors. His performance is amazing. And you talk about how at the end of the movie, you watch all these people who get their quote-unquote revenge on this man who's treated him like shit for, for years. I mean, if you look at Michael's character, like, yeah, he's the intellectual. He's always reading a book. And there's even one line in which in which uh, Spica... Uh, which is the the character played by Michael Gambone, he tells him, like, I, I bet more people have read the graffiti in the washroom stall than that book. And he's probably right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, like, Michael is intellectual, and he, he, he you know, he owns, I don't know if it's, like, a library or... Well, he works at, the, at a library. 
library, yeah. Right, okay, so he it's works a, there. It's technically a book depository. A but... book depository. <laughs> so, but, but the thing is, his silence is, and not just his silence, but everyone's silence is crucial into understanding the role of the chaotic environment and the role that Speak Up plays. Because, like, and, and that's where I guess it kind of, like, ties into politics in general because – you know, there's all of these quote unquote innocent bystanders, but there's all of these people who don't speak up. Like he'll sit there in the restaurant and he'll let him be rude to him. He'll let him just like toy with him and, and make fun of him and do whatever he, not just him, but there's like several people in this movie where they'll just let this man walk all over them and he can insult them and stab them in the face with a fork and, you know, be physically violent with them and they will not do anything to protect themselves or fight back. And in a way you're sort of, you're, you're playing into the system. You're playing, you're, you're, you're giving him power, but at the same time you kind of understand that, well, the reason why people don't fight back is because they're trying to protect themselves like physically, right? They're, they're they have to think about their safety, but there's something to be said about the fact that at the end, not towards the end of the movie, but uh, almost towards the end of the movie, like when they do kill him, when they kill Michael, they kill him by taking the pages of his favorite book they force the pages down his throat. So he chokes on the pages of the book, his favorite book. He chokes on the very words that he preaches or believes in. And that's how they kill him. So they, and, That's and, the most obvious symbolism in the movie. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't have a guy who, who runs a book depository getting fed pages from a book and not re recognize the symbolism there. Right. But then how does the movie end? With the glutton being forced to eat um, <laughs> that guy's dick. <laughs> I mean, I guess I get, what, I get what you're really saying is um, <laughs> for him to have to uh, reap what he's sown, essentially. He's fed the other guy something, and now he's got to eat some of him. So that's like more symbolism, if that's what you're going for there. Well, I mean, there's a point in the movie where he basically yells out like several times. He's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to eat him. I'm going to catch him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to eat him. And so when she shows up at the, at, at the restaurant at the very end, they have this sort of like private affair where it's by invitation only. And he's totally confused as to what's going on. And they roll out Michael's dead corpse, who's now been cooked by the cook. And she forces him to eat Michael. I mean, even if we go back and we just if we go back and, and we, you know, we're talking about the colors and everything. And you look at how the colors change in, in that specific scene, how it becomes like. Towards the end of the movie, you see a lot of black and a lot of red, and it starts bleeding over the colors that we would normally see in those rooms, like the green or the orange or the white or what have you. And towards the end of the film, like, she basically, it's weird because, like, she does get her revenge and she forces him to eat this man, which is kind of, like, gross. Uh, and I do love the way the movie ends by her delivering that last line, right? But she doesn't necessarily do something that is what anyone would consider a good deed. To force someone to eat someone, it kind of turns you into a monster too, right? Well, it's almost like like the classic tragedies of like Shakespeare or uh, Sophocles, where the like the the acts have to be so grim and so disturbing to make their point. That it it really falls into that same sort of. I feel like that's why the story is so off kilter in comparison to like your normal how a normal film would run too. It feels like one of those stories. Yeah, like, like uh, something like Titus, for example. Like yeah, like exactly like like Adronicus Titus or um, Oedipus uh, Oedipus Rex or one of those types of stories where there's incredibly disturbing stuff on display, but you feel like we're not just having people with sticks for arms. Or dudes having sex with their moms and then, you know, 
there's something here behind these horrific things that we're being forced to witness. There is a cruel twist because she has used the same sort of like violence on him, Albert Spica, her husband, as he would on, on whoever his previous victims were. And, you know, it's it's weird because she's it's... become a monster to fight a monster, essentially. <laughs> Such a... <laughs> it's just, but, but the thing is, that, but what I do like about this, and I again, I get it. I get why some people do not like this movie, right? But there's still a lot to like about it. Like, you can still love the color design or the cinematography or the performances. Like, the, the cast is amazing. Um, but even, like, I mean, they hired, and I don't know the name of the chef, but they hired this famous, like, French chef to actually do the, the, the props, like, the food props for the movie. Because, like, when you watch the movie, like, everything's laid out like a painting, right? Because not only was Peter Greenway, or he still is, he's, a, he's, a, he's trained as a classical painter, but he's inspired by all of these Dutch paintings. And so every camera shot, like you can press pause at any time and you can take that and use it as a screensaver for your computer. And it, it would look like a Dutch painting from like, I don't know, like 1870s or something, right? Yeah, there's, I was going to say, there's no question this movie's gorgeous. Uh, and I think that that's one of its, there's two things, two draws this movie. Now I'm a person that didn't connect with the revenge thing at all like i would never i wouldn't list this in my top 20 revenge films to tell you the truth uh just from the feeling that got from it. like i felt no satisfaction in the end and to be honest with you guys i was a little sorry to see gambone go uh albert go because that character was the only enjoyable character i guess in the entire movie for me um really you didn't enjoy that like i felt i found the love affair between um Gosh, Georgina and Michael. Yeah, Georgina and Michael. I found that to be because this world is so horrific that they're that they're being forced to live in. Well, particularly her. Like Michael's more of a bystander in this world. He just comes there because he happens to enjoy this restaurant. But this world that they're being forced to endure, and then they have this escape from that, where it's not where they can, you know. And like Rick said, they juxtapose that with like these other aspects like the cooking and the symbolism there. I don't know. I found, I really identified, especially on Georgina's side because I really wanted her to have something that wasn't just like pain and misery. And and not just that, but did did you, did you, do you remember that towards the end of the film, like after Michael is dead, before she gets her revenge, she asks the cook. I was going to say, that's my favorite scene in the entire movie is the scene where she convinces him to do it for her. She doesn't just convince him, though. What she does first is she wants some reassurance that she actually had something real with Michael. Like, she needed someone to witness her scenes, her her time spent with Michael, making love or not. It doesn't matter. She just needed someone to witness it so it will become real because she's the type of person who's never really experienced happiness. She's always been, like, a victim of whatever. Uh, well, and when you're in an emotional relationship, or uh, like an abusive relationship, I should say, um, the, the person makes you question your own reality as well. Right. And so that's what I love about that specific scene. And that, that and then going back to the colors, that's the only time when the cook actually changes the colors and what he wears. So, like, Peter Greenway is clearly using color to sort of uh, emphasize what is going on with these characters mentally and, and, um, and like what they're feeling like emotionally, like for sure. The, again, you don't need to read into the movie the same way as everyone else does. Cause everyone else, everyone has their own like 
interpretation of what this movie is about right like uh one of the craziest <laughs> one of the craziest interpretations i've ever read and i do not know who wrote this because this is something i read like years ago but someone was talking about how like the restaurant itself is like a metaphor for for the human body and that's why you open up with the the scene in which they smear shit all over the man and there's a tracking shot and the tracking shot goes into the restaurant and it ends in the uh, in in the washroom so it was like it was like this like weird like reading into the movie about how it was going through the intestines or something it was like I okay. get I get what people are going for with stuff like that but I find that shit insufferable well no and I, I agree like, and it could be real. And it could not be, but I feel like no matter what the metaphor or the analogy of the movie is, the movie should should be able to stand on its own Which without it that. But that's, what and that's, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, it does stand on its own, regardless of whether you have that um, political or symbolological way of looking at it. But the thing is, and what I said at the beginning of the show is that's what I'm saying. That's why for me, this movie works as just a straight up revenge thriller. Because when I first saw this movie, I saw it. Like, I was just becoming, like, a quote-unquote movie buff. Like, I'd always loved movies and watched movies, you know, on a daily, weekly basis type thing. But when I watched this movie, I did not know who – I swear to God, I didn't know who Martin Scorsese was. I wasn't the type of person who would notice the names of filmmakers and directors. And this is around the time when I started taking notice of, like, okay, who made this movie? Who was the director? And so when I watched this movie, regardless of what the colors mean or don't mean, it's a type of movie that made me realize that they filmmakers actually do use color for specific reasons in movies. And so I think it's a really interesting film to use – if you're a film professor, for example, and you want to show your students how a filmmaker can use color to emphasize something in a film or in a scene, um, you know, but there's other things to love about it. Like one of my favorite fashion designers is Jean-Paul Gaultier. And Jean-Paul Gaultier just happened to make all the costumes in this movie. I did not know that. I only found out about that years later. But when watching the movie, like you look at the costumes, you don't have to know anything about fashion. The costumes look fantastic. The camera work. The camera work is amazing. That opening tracking shot. Like, you know, when I, I made I made a list of my, my favorite movies of 1990. Because technically this movie was released in 1990. It played at film festivals in 89. But theatrically, it got a release in 1990. But anyways, I made a list of my favorite movies in 1990. Number one was Goodfellas. Number two was this movie. Both movies open up with this incredible tracking shot. The cinematographer of this movie is the same guy who shot Hiroshima Mon Amour. And movies like The Last Year of Marion Bad, like two of the greatest movies ever made. He worked with Alain, uh, Alain René. Um, you know, he's just an incredible cinematographer. And the way his camera moves, right? The camera will ha- it'll have this great tracking shot that goes throughout the whole entire restaurant. Kind of like kind of like Scorsese, but not really, because the way his camera moves, it's it's as if we are watching a play. It's more lingering, whereas Scorsese is more dynamic and in your face. This is more of a lingering. Uh, like it's moving slower. It's more well, progressive. Scorsese will have someone pick up the camera. It's like this handheld camera shot, and it's like mm-hmm. this this handheld camera shot that lasts like about five minutes while they walk through a club, for example. And in this case, it's a it's a it's a static shot. Like the camera doesn't move off of like I mean the camera moves, but it it, it never like. Uh, it's hard for me to explain, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Pan. It's like a slow pan, whereas the scene, like the Copacabana scene in, in Goodfellas is fast and frenetic, and there's a lot happening. A lot of times, there's just these slow pans in this movie. Well, 
uh, the, the Copacabana scene is is the camera work isn't fast. It's the activity around it. Now, exactly. That's kind of what I want. I want to break in here really quick because what you're talking about is staging here. It's not so much even the cameraman. The camera, the the the, the visuals look gorgeous. The lighting's very great. But what makes these shots beautiful is Peter Greenaway's staging of the shots. And that's where the painterly stuff comes in. He knows where to place everybody. He knows how to do his mise-en-scene. It's, it, that's what you're looking at foreground, background stuff. And his, his camera moves slowly and deliberately because it's supposed to, it does have that painterly feel to it. You're supposed to linger on the images just like you would stand and peruse a, a painting. Exactly. Thank you. The st- staging is the word I'm looking for because it's staged like a theater play with the camera sliding between rooms, staying static in action, but it's never not facing the front. So it's like we, the audience, watching a play. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. That's a good yeah, point. He, he definitely, he never crosses a line. He He's always having you face one direction. There's never a single moment where where you see the other side of the restaurant. You're, and there's you're- there's often these scenes, too, where it is framed out almost like a play where you can see all of the characters in one shot and then the camera might pan between them at some points. But it is like, a, like you mentioned, it is like a play in that way. And, and what filmmaker do we see do this all the time nowadays over the past like 15 years? Wes Anderson. He yeah, does Wes it Anderson. in every single one of his movies. Yeah. And he's a big proponent of the tracking shot, which not too many people use anymore, uh, not deliberately anyway, or so noticeably as Wes Anderson does. I mean, it's obviously he wants you to see this is a, a tracking shot. And so did Greenaway in this movie. Uh, it was clear that he just wanted you to sort of see the process of certain things. Yeah. Also, have you guys ever seen the documentary Man on Wire? Yes, I have. I also saw the movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which was not very good. Man on Wire is like one of my favorite documentaries of all time. And one of the things I love about, about Man on Wire is the music. Now, I could have Googled, Googled this, but I didn't have time. Is this the same soundtrack or the same composer as Man on Wire? Like Michael Nyman did the soundtrack, the score for this movie. And I love it. But I could swear it's the same music they used in the documentary. I was happy to see that because I'm actually a fan of Michael Nyman. I I have some of his music even on Spotify. So when I I was scrolling through doing some reading earlier today to kind of refresh my memory on this film, I was like, oh, Michael Nyman. Well, that makes me even more confident that this movie is as great as I remember it being. Oh, his music's so good. So good. And I swear to God, I'm pretty sure they used at least one, if not two tracks in the documentary. But I love the violin and the piano. Just the, the main theme you know what I'm talking about? The main theme that you hear throughout the whole entire film? It's just You such... are correct, by the way. It, it is, right? Yes, I yeah. knew it. I love that song. I love it. I've never uh, I've never really connected with uh, painting like, you know, look, going to a museum and looking at oil paintings. And I can appreciate that kind of art from a distance. Uh, same with poetry. I've never been able to connect with poetry. I don't understand why people enjoy it. I'm not putting it down. I'm just it's just something that uh, I've always been curious about because I don't have any reaction to poetry 
or usually any, any emotional reaction to paintings. Uh, some people do. I find that interesting. Um, but I didn't have any re emotional reaction to this because I do view it as a painting. I think it was shot like a painting. I think it's very formal. Uh, I, I definitely think this, is, this could be considered fine art in the truest sense. Um, and I think it was intended to be that, and that's fine. It is what it is, and I can appreciate it from a distance, and I do appreciate it from a distance because I do think it looks gorgeous, and I, I think there are qualities to it which are very uh, you know, highly skilled. Um, and they were put together by somebody with an intent, and I always like to see that. I like, I like auteur filmmaking. Um, I think it's interesting. It makes movies more interesting. But because I don't really connect to it, I am curious. You guys have connected to it. Is that something that you see? Like, do you... Do you have you do you guys connect to fine art like that um do you get more out of it than i do i can connect with art that that makes an impact on me but like i can understand not not connecting with every what you would say a great piece of uh art like every great painting or whatever that's ever been made but like you patrick i like to understand i always want to understand when people get a reaction from something that i don't get so i understand why you're reaching for that um david lynch you don't like him you mentioned the painterly thing, so that's naturally like maybe there's a I, disconnect there. Yeah, in I any case, his skills, but I don't. Yeah, like, his movies have no effect on me other than I'm like other than I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah, so maybe there is a disconnect there. Maybe like I like I said, I can relate to trying to understand why people like something when I don't really connect with it. But I I do connect with some paintings, but only the paintings that have an effect on me, right? So you know, take take take, take that with a grain of salt, of course. I don't connect with paintings because to me it's it's just a still image. It might be beautiful, but for me it's really about sound, emotion, and feelings, and and, and in this case, like the acting that I connect with. So uh, when you when you mentioned poetry, like I connect with hip hop because I find it fascinating to to listen to these guys who struggled and used to be poor, lived in violent neighborhoods or whatever. And, and there's this like whole subculture, you know, that revolves around hip hop music. Right. And I find that fascinating, but it's also like, it's sound and, and sound brings out these emotions in people, uh, a movie. And this is why Peter Greenaway mentioned that quote at the beginning of the podcast. Like he said that the reason why he started making movies was because with painting, there's no soundtrack that comes with it because he realized that people react emotionally more towards something that has sound, be it, the actor speaking, reciting lines, or the soundtrack, or everything, you know, the sound design and everything. Uh, so so the thing with this movie is that it works for me because of the tone and the atmosphere. So yeah, the visuals are fa fantastic, and that's probably the reason why it attracted me to begin with. But by the time the movie ends... Uh, I, I can't help but not think of like the musical score. Like I just, I think it's just amazing. It really, cause the, the score has like really two main tracks, right. To play throughout the whole entire film. So those are like the, the main themes for, for the movie. So it's just like, it's a, it's like, it would be the soundtrack of these people's lives. It's those two songs. So that makes any sense. It does. And I think it's meant to, to do that. Obviously that, that soundtrack, they're, they're vastly different. The, the main two tracks, and uh, they repeat so much that you begin to associate them with scenarios and people. Uh, and again, I love that. I love that kind of uh, decision. First of all, I love themes in movies, period. I think that we've seen a, a huge loss of the use of themes in movies. And I think themes are really important and they, they really do help sell things. Uh, music can convey it, of course, can convey emotion and it can be used to manipulate as well, by lesser filmmakers, um, they try to tell you what to feel uh, instead of letting you feel it, which is always a mistake. Uh, 
lot of horror movies do this, and of course, romantic movies do this too. But I mean, all, all sorts of movies do this. Um, I think that being quiet, there's times when 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 being quiet can actually have an impact, and you can see that in certain movies. Um, but yeah, he does. I like that he tied his themes to specific characters and kind of what they do and moments. And that really works for me, I think. Um, but yeah, obviously the sound of Michael Gambon's voice is all the music that I need to hear in this movie. <laughs> Cause it's amazing. But you, you could watch this movie on mute and you can still get something out of it. Cause the visuals are so, so gorgeous and beautiful, but oh, yeah. you can never get an emotional reaction from watching this movie on, 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 on mute. Like, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, oh, yeah, I, I obviously had my problems getting one anyway, but of course, uh, uh, yeah, it would be much harder on mute because I think it, you do need to hear certain what's going on. It's not one of those movies where you could actually silence it and it's all done visually. That movie would be the movie we discussed last week, The Passion of the Christ. Yeah, yeah, you could put that on mute. You would, you don't need to hear anything, obviously. They didn't even intend for you to understand what was being said. So <laughs> I don't think you really need to hear anything, period, from that. All right, with that, I think we will take a quick break, and we're going to play another clip from The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Well, I suddenly have to come in to my own restaurant like a stranger. Special invitations. <laughs> Which I might say could have gone to a better printer. Not to bang on the door like an outcast. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Georgina Duckles. What brings you here, you bitch? I'm very surprised you so brazenly show your face here, you slut. Where are you being, Georgina? Albert has been frantic. Shut up, Grace. Find me a drink. Happy anniversary, Albert. I'll bloody kill you for what you did to me. Oh, you should find that easy. And don't think I'm taking you back. I'll make you pay, you slut. Your bottom's going to be very, very sore for weeks. <laughs> no more books for you, girl. You're staying in under lock and key. There's going to be no more books or prick sniffing for you, girl. Happy anniversary, Albert. What are you talking about, happy anniversary? It's not my birthday. No, that's true, but it's an anniversary that I shall always celebrate, even if you won't. And you won't. What are you talking about, woman? Where is everybody? Well, they'll be here presently. Look, Georgina. What? It's all over now. What is? Look, uh, Grace, look, go, just go and look out of a window or something, will oh. you? Mitchell, bugger all out of it. Look, Georgina, when the others arrive, where are they? It says nine o'clock on the invitation. Where are they going to sit? They'll be here presently. Look, Georgina, you didn't, didn't really like him, did you? I mean, uh, I couldn't like a bloody bookkeeper and nobody. Look, I'll tell you what. I'll try it. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll forget it, eh? Hey, come on with me. <laughs> Tell you the truth, Georgie. I've been a bit miserable. Since it is your anniversary. What bloody anniversary? I've brought you a present. Look, I don't need presents. It's me who gives you presents. You've always known that. Besides, you've never had the, the money to give me presents. And 
Richard has cooked it for you. Under my instructions. Oh? Knowing how you like to eat. Knowing how you like to gorge yourself. And we've brought a few of your friends around. All right, that was another clip from 1990s The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. See, guys, I can say it again, and I can make that joke again, and that's an inside joke. All right. (laughs) (laughs) This is the portion of the podcast where we come to our five questions that we always like to do, and we always like to start positive, of course. So, um, Mike, what is your favorite scene from this movie? Well, I, as I mentioned earlier, my favorite scene is absolutely the scene where Georgina has to convince Richard to cook her uh, lover, his his corpse, in order to exact her revenge on Albert. Which, because it's it's so audacious that like you you have to like from the from the moment the scene is started and you realize what's happening in the, the scene that she's asking him to do this. And he's like, oh boy, I don't know. Like, it's a it's a big ask, and I think the I think that scene just flows so well because it's really her asking someone she trusts to help her finally get a comeuppance on this this man who's wronged her for so long, and like take the fact that he took away so brutally the only thing that was giving joy to her life. So, I, I just I find the nuance of that scene to be really impressive and I really like it because it's such a it's such an audacious scene it's an, it's insane scene there's also a lot going on in that scene probably more than any other scene in the movie possibly because it's it's getting at several different things which is the chef's reaction to this <laughs> and yeah. also this is when she taught you know she she offers herself to him she wants to know whether or not he saw that that that, right. that somebody loved her and that she was in love with somebody there's a lot going on here um, in in addition to also him asking and her I, asking him to cook this guy. On that note, I think that's the scene where he where the the, the cook who gets first billing in the title, where he really becomes a character because he's the fact that he's first billed in in terms of how the title is laid out. He's in the film less than I think any other of the four characters. Yeah, he might be. He's almost just an observer to all of this. He doesn't try. I mean, he he doesn't try to exert any influence over anything that's going on. He kind of keeps to his kitchen, and yeah, he'll sneak little surprises to Georgie and everything like that. But otherwise, he just takes what abuse is given to him, and he he doesn't actually doesn't just take it. He he pushes back a little bit. He seems like the only other character that could stand up to Albert, and he does. And it seems like Albert is willing to take a little guff from him and he doesn't slap him around because the cook doesn't, he just says no when he wants to say no. And he doesn't seem to care about anything. He has utmost confidence in himself and what he's doing. Yeah. And I mean, but I think this is the scene where he finally takes agency on himself. Yeah. Like he has these little, he has he these little sneaks and tricks and whatnot, but this is the, he picks a side here. Essentially. Yeah. He finally gets involved in this. I think that goes back to the whole colors and the use of color, because it's the one scene in which he finally does change his outfit and he's no longer wearing the I think he normally wears white he's actually wearing black and that's also when he starts talking about the um the color of black food like black olives and and the color of death and and anyhow like I I really do think that's one of the best scenes in a film so that being said Rick what is your favorite scene in the movie um well I I, I really really love 
the ending of the movie. And I think without that ending, I wouldn't really walk away loving this movie as much as I do. But the scene I'm actually going to highlight is uh, the scene in which they escape. So basically the cook, Richard, right? Richard takes Georgina and Michael and he brings them through the kitchen and they go through like the back alley, I guess, the back door. And he puts them inside one of the two vans. And it's one of the two vans that has the rotting carcasses of meat and fish. Here you have Georgina and Michael completely nude, juxtaposed against the rotting flesh of the meat in the truck. And they have to go through this hell in order to escape. And I don't know, there's something about that scene. Like, it's horrific and it's beautiful. And at the same time, it's it's gorgeous, like the way he shoots it and the lighting and everything about it. I just love, love the scene. And, of course, the soundtrack once again. Yeah, that's uh, when they get in the truck. That is definitely there's some there's some gross ick factor that although they cut it pretty quickly right as they're reacting to the stink, the stench inside there. And before that, they had just been hanging out in the freezer. So they were already uh, they were kind of being put through all sorts of things uh, in that sequence. Um, all right. So my favorite would probably be weird as it may seem the scene where. Albert messes with Georgina's dinner. Uh, she's been brought out a special treat. He doesn't understand. He well, first of all, he doesn't like it that she's getting special attention from the chef because there's kind of an there's a there's a different there's a relationship between them because she actually understands food and has a palate as the chef uh, a great palate as the chef uh, remarks early on. And that's that's a world that he can't be a part of. It's something that he can't understand and can't control. Um, so he hates that it that it's going on, and so he decides to ruin her her little dinner. Um, to put her down even further. And it's, uh, it's to me, one of the best character moments that he has because it's such a small thing. All he does is dump some some wine on there and some sauce, and he, he just screws things up a little bit. Uh, he puts dump salt all over it, um, just screws up the taste. Like he wants to ruin, ruin whatever great meal had been pl- prepared for her. And it's just such a petty thing that um, I really thought that was, said more about his character's awfulness than even some of the more blatant violent acts that occur early on which of course uh definitely portray him as a villain but i think this cuts to the core that he is truly an awful human being uh, well it shows so, how petty he is yeah yeah i like i liked it that scene quite a bit it's a nice character moment they didn't have to put in um uh, but they did all right so that being said we're gonna do a 180 here mike what would you change about this movie if you could well, the only thing I could think of is that I would just like to see the Albert character get more of a comeuppance because, yes, he's forced to cannibalize um, a man's penis, but <laughs> uh, he's summarily shot in the head. He doesn't really have to live in the humiliation of that for very long. So um, I would like to see him get more of a comeuppance. But, I mean, it's still a pretty great, like Rick said, like the movie almost lives and dies on like the, the revenge at the end, so it's still a great revenge. It's just I felt like he was such a piece of shit. He needed more of a comeuppance at the end. Yeah, he definitely. I mean, he was just well. It's hard to say. It all depends on your reaction to cannibal being forced to, to eat somebody. Yeah. <laughs> that could be one of the worst things in the world, or it could be not bad enough. Um, yeah, I mean, the actual getting shot part—that's just sort of the 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 cap to the entire experience. Yeah. Uh, but the humiliation, I suppose, being forced to eat somebody, it all depends. Um, mine's a little bigger. I would definitely, so I would basically change, there's a, after they escape, that's where the movie kind of goes 
a little flat for me. Well, not just a little flat. It goes flat for me um, up until the end again, at least. Um, I would change the scene. The, 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 but the, the, so basically, whenever Michael and Georgina are on screen together, I, I definitely had less interest in the movie than I otherwise would have had. Uh, I just didn't find those two characters to be um, interesting or relatable at all. I didn't actually care for them, to tell you the truth. And so when they're together at the book depository, I kind of just want to get back to Albert and his hunt for them and whatever he's doing, um, all the horrible things that he's doing in order to find out where they are. But I think the worst of their scenes to me was the the moment where uh, Georgina is laying in bed with a now dead Albert uh, after he has been killed by, or sorry, not dead Albert, dead Michael after he's been killed by Albert. And she goes over all of her reasons as to, you know, how horrible he's been and how her life has been and everything like that. Uh, I didn't think it was the right moment. I didn't think these characters were, were humans in the first place because I see this as more of an artistic movie and the characters are almost like props. I didn't need some sort of humanity brought into this and I didn't think it was done particularly well. Uh, so for me, the movie started to really drag right there because now it seemed to make me want to care emotionally when before it had this air of formality to it where it was aloof in many ways, uh, not seeming, you know, just kind of off in its own little planet. But now it was trying to get grounded and I didn't think it needed that at all. And I thought it slowed it down quite a bit. So I would change that. I'm not sure what I'd do it with. But that's what I would change. Every time Albert's not on screen, Patrick was like, where's Albert? I know. I where's Albert? Was. <laughs> I know. It wasn't like Silence of the Lambs where I had a great Jodie Foster character to get me through the rest of the movie. There were two great characters in that movie. Well, many, actually. But I had Jodie Foster. I didn't need Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter. I enjoyed him when he was there. I loved him. But she was great, too. So... This movie didn't have that secondary character for me. I really needed Albert. <laughs> hmm. uh, so, Rick, what would you change if you had a chance? So, I wouldn't really change anything. And the reason being is because I can't really figure out a reason to change something and how to make it better. Like, that's the problem. And I can't think of anything I would necessarily take out of the movie. But I will say that my least favorite scene, I think, is the scene that she don't like, which is when she finds Michael's dead body and she lies next to them and has like a conversation with a dead corpse like i do agree that that is the weakest scene in the movie but i i don't think i would actually change it because and the reason being is because it, it links to my favorite scene which is the scene that mike uh highlighted uh not too long ago which is when she she's speaking to the cook richard and she's asking richard about their relationship and she needs him uh, she, validate. She, to validate that her relationship with Michael was real. And so when she's lying next to him, it's like she it's like she doesn't even want to acknowledge she doesn't not, not acknowledge. She doesn't want to believe that he's actually dead. She like thinks he's actually going to wake up and he's not dead. Like she's she's not naive, she's not delusional. She's just not willing to accept the truth. I don't like the execution, but I like the idea behind it. So all that said, I wouldn't change anything because I don't know how to make it better. That is fair enough. All right, so that being said, Rick, who would you say is your MVP of this movie? Peter Greenaway. I know it's the boring answer, always saying the director week after week, but in this case, I have to say Peter Greenaway, specifically because it was his vision. He decided what colors to use and how the costumes should look and how the camera should move, and he directed the actors, and he got that the great performance from Michael Gambone, and yeah... I, I think that you're right with with the wrong actor 
in that role, this movie would fall apart. But it would be between him and Michael Gambon. But I'm just going to choose Greenaway just because he's the director, I guess. See, I would go, obviously, I'll go with Gambon uh, just because I think he, his, his presence is so largely felt. And again, take him out of that movie and put in a different actor. I don't. I, and obviously it's Greenway, you know, Greenway has part of the casting, but it was still up to Gambone to actually fulfill his end of the deal. And I think he did it with, you know, in spades, uh, take him out of that role and put another actor in. And you've got a very, very different movie. So much of it relies on him. You rarely see a movie where one actor has this much of the dialogue, uh, over uh, so many other characters. And, uh, yeah, he absolutely nails it. He, he, to me is the most magnetic thing in this movie, even though I really do like the visuals. Um, and I like the staging and everything. I love the way uh, Greenaway sets up his shots, but uh, they aren't quite enough to get me. I mean, they're, they're enough to they would be enough to get me through the movie, but the but I can really enjoy it when Gambone is also there spouting. <laughs> it's just it's a delicious performance. I mean, it really is, and I'm saying that deliberately, obviously. <laughs> so my. my who is your MVP? Well, I'm happy to descend and have a different opinion for both of you. Um, I really just was impressed to finally see like the 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 bombshell Helen Mirren, the the force that she was when she was younger. She's still great today, and even in bad movies, Helen Mirren is still usually pretty good. Um, but this was like this was my first introduction to the Helen Mirren of legend. The, the Helen Mirren of Scandal, even, um, that had lived on in cinema for so long. So, like, that made a big impression on me. And I just thought she was great in this movie. I thought she was the most... Like, Patrick, I get what you're saying when, when you say that Michael Gambon's the most human character. But he's a human you hate. So, she's the most human character that I liked in this movie. And without her, this movie's almost unwatchable. Because she's, like, the only good-ish thing, even if she goes kind of dark at the end she's the only character i was rooting for in this movie i'm going all in on the bad guys <laughs> <laughs> fair enough <laughs> sometimes sometimes the bad guys are the best part but she was without her i couldn't even watch michael Campon in this movie because he's so insufferable i don't think we asked you this but have you have you seen caligula before no, I hadn't. I, I have not seen that movie. I know, again, I know of the movie through its reputation, but my understanding of it was that it was more just like a, a seeing is believing type of movie and not so much like a, it has any value to it. So I skipped it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it has value in the sense that there's <laughs> it's one of a kind. Uh, That's what I mean. It's like a seeing is believing. It's not really like a movie like when I from what I'd read about it, it was a movie that like People are just like, you have to see this because it's, like, so crazy, not because it's, like, worth seeing. Right, right, exactly. Um, all right, so, with that said, uh, we're going to get to our Howard Hawks question. So, Howard Hawks famously once supposedly said, um, although, Rick, you've heard different r rumors that other directors may have said this as well, uh, but the, Hawk, the Hawks test is a great movie, must be comprised of three great scenes and no bad ones. So, Rick... Is this a great movie? So I'm going to say yes, because I think I, I don't think there's a bad scene. So I think there's three great scenes and not anything that I would go so far as to say is bad. Is there a scene that I think is weak? Yes, but not bad. So, yes, it passes the Howard Hawks test. Yeah, for me, I would say it does not, because I do think that scene is bad and actually detracts from the movie. Um, I think that it 
it def- it doesn't need to be there. I think what we've seen her go through over the 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 first you know hour and a half of the movie, and this is very close to the very end, uh, is enough to get. If you are going to connect with her, it's enough to get your sympathy behind her already. So it builds up. It can that already leads into the finale. Uh, and if you haven't connected to her, it just feels meaningless. It feels almost like like begging for affection to me. That's what it felt like to me. It felt like this thing that was thrown in there, like, oh, shoot, I need to get your affection now. So now I'm going to list all these bad things that happened to me. Um, and it did not. I did not buy it. And it, it actually detracted, took the wind out of the sails for the movie for me um, in the last few, few minutes of the movie. Uh, so, yeah, to me, I'll, I'll say no. But uh, it does have three great scenes. I'll give it that. Uh, Mike, what about you? I don't think, like Rick said, I don't. There's, there's, there's better scenes and there's worse scenes in the movie. But I didn't think there was any one scene where I was where I thought it was outright bad. So I would say it does pass the test because there was definitely at least three great scenes in the movie, and I didn't think there was any scene that I thought was egregiously negative or bad in any way. Now, of course, the question is, if it's a great movie, does it stand the test of time? Does this movie hold up today, Mike? That was actually the one question I kept remembering. I knew you guys asked questions at the end. I couldn't remember what they all were. That was the one I remembered. And I was like, it absolutely does. Because I, the first time I saw this movie was like 21 years after it came out, where it was long divorced from whatever political or symbological context that the movie may or may not have been uh, derived in long divorced from the time long divorced from like yeah so absolutely yes because I saw it in 2010 21 years after its release and I loved it so I think it absolutely stood the test of time for me I haven't seen it since that time but I I, I, I imagine my reaction today would be much the same yeah I don't say I saw it for the first time just this week so <laughs> I think it holds <laughs> up just fine uh, if you're into that kind of movie if it's going to hold up just fine it looks great uh, the acting is is fantastic across the board. Um, you're either it's a very arty movie. That's fine. That that can be great. Um, I'd say take a chance on it if you if you're into that. If you're you know into experimenting a little bit with expanding your tastes. Um, yeah, I'd say it's it's it holds up just fine. I don't see how it could possibly go wrong. Again, it's not a very realistic movie, so it's and it's not trying to be. So this is something that sort of exists within its own little world in the same way that a play, you know, can can last for a very long time. I mean, there are old plays that just the plays never get really old, to tell you the truth. Um, at least not to me anyway. Uh, Rick, we're going to let you have the last word on this one. I agree for the exact same reasons that you just stated. So I'm not really going to repeat what you said out of all of Peter Greenaway's movies that I've seen. And I first watched this movie back in college. But I will say that of all the movies I've seen from Peter Greenaway, this is by far his uh, his most accessible. Like, it's the one that you can recommend to mainstream moviegoers. And I'm not saying they're going to like it, but it's a lot easier for them to w- sit down and watch his movie as opposed to some of his other films. Mm-hmm. Which is weird because, like, when it came out, it was controversial and got the NC double. What was it? NC-17? They were threatened with either an NC-17 or they could go unrated, and they chose unrated because NC-17 was usually associated with porn. Um, Showgirls is the only mainstream NC-17 movie I can remember actually coming out in the theaters. Most theaters didn't want to carry an NC-17. At least they didn't make any cuts. (laughs) Right. And uh, yeah, you could release as unrated, and then you could go into the art house cinemas, and it would be fine. And they'd they'd obviously make their own choices. I honestly... I, I. 
that was an overreaction. It seems like to me, I don't think there's anything in this movie to warrant NC-17, even by the day's standards, to tell you the truth. It must have been the cannibalism thing, because honestly, I don't see anything else there. I think it was the nudity. Well, there is plenty of nudity in other movies in the 80s. I don't know, man, because I was told that there's a certain amount of nudity that you can have in a movie, and this movie had so much nudity, that's why they had to give it the rating. It had nothing to do with the violence. I just don't think it has that much. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, obviously, it. There, there's at least there's at least five geni- scenes. Yeah, back like, male genitalia, genitalia was was uh, that might have warranted it right there. Right, and it um, happens more than once. So it, yeah. it it there's a certain amount of like f words and male, like well not just male like frontal nudity you can have. Like I don't know what the rules were back then, but there's a certain amount of everything you can have, and it had just a bit too much. I feel like it was worse on male nudity than it was on female nudity uh, but it's it's funny because obviously nudity had been a thing you know the 70s opened stuff up quite a bit than the 80s and, and 90s the 90s especially i think even more so clamped down on nudity um which is weird but that's what happened yeah honestly uh, very very strange that this movie was slapped with nc-17 this is one of those ones they should go back and re-rate because it's ridiculous uh at this point <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap things up. But Rick, you've got a, a little special um, extra for listeners of this podcast. So at the start of the podcast, I mentioned that way back in the day, we recorded a Peter Greenaway show episode when we started this very podcast. Right. This is like way back in 2008, I believe. And uh, I'm going to actually play about 15 minutes of that show. And you are going to hear from my good friend, Derek Gladue, who was the manager of Movieland Video and a film historian. This guy knows his shit. And also Christina Benio, who used to be my uh, co-host of this very podcast. Um, so it's it, they have a completely different take. And they talk about astrology and biblical references within this film. And it's really interesting. So, yeah, we're going to play that after the clip. Okay, so that should do it. Uh, Mike, where can we find you online? Well, you can, of course, find me on Goomba Stomp, where I've been a long-standing staple, just like you two gentlemen, and I also do a little work over at Cultured Vultures from time to time. All right, there we go. And you can, of course, find me also on GoombaStomp.com. I have not written as much in a long time, but it's hard for me to write at home, and that's where everybody's stuck right now. Uh, I'm used to going to coffee shops to do my writing. Uh, anyway, uh, but you can find some of my stuff there. Like, And, of course, you can listen to Rick and I on our other podca- podcast, the NXpress Nintendo podcast, uh, if you want to hear us talk about video games. Uh, and also you can see find me on Twitter, at Sorted Cinema. So tweet at me if you think uh, – if you completely disagree with me or if you are uh, completely in support of Rick and Mike on The Thief. The cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Man, I screwed up at the end. All right. Uh, Rick, where, where can we find you online? I handle the official Twitter account for Goomba Stomp, which is Goomba Stomp Mag. You can, of course, find my writing over at GoombaStomp.com. I usually write an article for every movie we review on this podcast. I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to do it this week. I will try. Either way, you can find all the podcasts there. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, Spotify, you name it. All the links are over, once again, at GoombaStomp.com and or SortedCinema.com. All right, that should about wrap things up, but you can stick around for a little bit more talk on The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, uh, and we will see you guys next week with The Mist. I think you behave like a bloke. What days are those in, Albert? What's it like? You what? Get away from this table, you mucky little wimp. Go and eat your vegetable soup in the kitchen. 
you dirty little pervert. Go on. Get on with your eating, eh? It's only little uh, making a fool of himself. Now stand in the corner. Corey, make him a paper act. Good. Stand in the corner like a naughty little boy. Go on. Stand there. Take your knife and fork with you. Oh, don't be stupid. Stupid? Do you want to join him? Leave him alone. He's only copying you like he always does. You behave, he'll behave. I'm leaving. Yes, we are leaving. Gracie. Yeah. Pay the bill and take a taxi. We need to adapt to the market. So the hell with uh, documentaries, uh, oldies, cult movies. We need to simplify. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Can you hear this? Do you want me to turn it up? You gotta understand something here. That without this, life would be meaningless. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. I believe in America for justice. Stay tuned because this is a hard Harry reminding you to eat your cereal with a fork and do your homework in the dark. The Boulevard of Broken all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, have I got your attention now? Welcome, everyone, to Sound on Sight. And you know what, Christina, Derek? I'm very excited for the show because it's the first time I do a show where I've never seen a film by the filmmaker ever before. It's the first time last week that I saw two Peter Greenaway films. So I'm actually a little disappointed we didn't do three or four because I love them so much. But we'll get to that as we move along with the show. Welcome back, Christina. All right. Now, the movie's called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Now, Derek, Christina, put aside any metaphors or deeper meanings within the film. So what I want to know is, does the revenge fantasy deliver enough punch to hold the attention of mainstream moviegoers, especially our mainstream movie listeners out there, or is its grim, to say the least, narrative simply too much for the masses? Let's start off with Derek. Well, I, meaning and alternative explanations of what you're seeing before you is one of the things that makes Peter Greenaway work. Um, it's uh, if you're, you're saying that people are not going to want to go see this on Saturday Night Live when they could be watching the Bruins game, probably not. But um, it's it's it works not just and actually I, I'm kind of grateful for your take on that. That's there's so many different interpretations about the film, mm-hmm. and some of which we might even talk about tonight. And uh, a rev- it, it does play as a traditional revenge play. I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the things that makes this film such a a deep dish. It's just there's so many ways to interpret. Some of them are contradictory. That uh, makes this definitely something you have to watch more than once, mm-hmm. sometimes more than a dozen times. Well, most people, myself included, start with the, this film when they when they dive into the Greenaway filmography. Christina, yourself, do you think uh, mainstream audiences could go for this? Um, well, I think that we are definitely starting off with the most... Uh, it's it's definitely the most accessible film, and I think it's important if somebody's going to delve into this artist to get into this one first, because uh, I know that I started with some more obscure, multi-layered, like difficult pieces, and I was almost turned off by his stuff. But mm-hmm. seeing this film, it's it's his most narrative film. 
Um, so it's you know just for uh, you know a layman who hasn't uh, studied his oeuvre, it's easy to to follow. It's a pretty simple story, like you said. It's a revenge tale. Um, it's set in a beautiful setting. There's some um, biting dialogue. There's some beautiful costumes by Jean-Paul Gaultier, um, and uh, it's it's just a, it's a treat. It's a visual treat. So I think I mean I can't wait to get into our discussion. I'm sure the three of us have completely different takes on what mm-hmm. the uh, director was trying to get across. But in terms of um, accessibility. I think this is a really important film to, to talk about first mm-hmm. because it's gonna it's gonna sort of um, get people interested. Um, pornography or politics, Derek? Uh, some people say you know it's a statement, a political statement by Greenaway against Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Is it simply both, or is it really just a movie about a cook, a thief, his wife, and her lover? <laughs> um, I don't think there's anything really simple. And I guess the the simple and complex answer is, yes, it's all of them and none of them. Um, I've never really been totally satisfied with the, the take on Thatcherism. Uh, perhaps we could talk about that in a bit, mm-hmm. uh, in a bit, a little while. Um, it, it takes place in the 80s, yes. Um, but uh, there, there have been some interpretations. There's definitely... Uh, there's definitely the Marxist interpretation. There's definitely uh, feminist take on this. There's uh, structural takes, structuralism. Uh, but one that I think that uh, really doesn't get talked about is an entirely formal approach. He is a painter. Mm-hmm. His films are painterly. And they are definitely Baroque. And uh, by that, Baroque is an interesting period in in history because it's the middle ground between the Dark Ages and modernity. It's when artists and painters and scientists all were using or approaching a new way of thinking, but they're using forms from the old world. A lot of them had to work in a code. Mm-hmm. So the the transition between alchemy and chemistry, between astrology and astronomy, and you see a lot of codes, a lot of things hidden in, in this work. And this is what makes it so maybe – I don't think this is an accessible film at all mm-hmm. because though it's so simple, there's so much going on in a frame. There's plays on words. There's recurring motifs. Um, you know, I, I would rather sort of approach this as a formal sort of uh, enterprise and let's – I'd rather sort of talk about the more standard sort of takes on this first and get back to mm-hmm. that. I, I agree that each frame could be seen as a painting, but I was under the impression it's really about greed, you know, and, and – the whole entire film, it's all about greed and, and I mean, rich versus the poor. Does that, Christina, you're... Thatcherism? I've seen this movie literally a dozen times. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of my favorites. I, personally, I think it's very close to being a, a perfect film. And uh, you can say what you want about that, Derek. But um, I hadn't picked up on the um, political parable at all until I um, saw totally by fluke Hunger this weekend, which I know that you mm-hmm. talked about in a previous show, but it dealt with the same subject matter. It dealt with the 80s, um, with Thatcher, with and it was it treated the subject matter in a very similar way, you know, with the abject, with filth and excrement and things like that. So seeing this this very different type of film, you know, this very painterly artistic film, mm-hmm. but dealing with these themes in the same way, really, it was hard not to not to view it in that sense right and in terms of and like what you were saying derek about it not not being accessible um when you're dealing with so many layers of meaning and so many different kinds of takes i don't see how you can say that it's not accessible Mm -hmm. well i guess i guess if and this is a word i'm going to be using uh throughout the discussion if we use base if it's if we're just talking about something that people will consume and digest Mm -hmm. and uh shit out sorry um 
then it's not this. This is something that has to be watched and engaged with because mm-hmm. it's engaging us. Mm-hmm. All right. So I- I- accessible, I usually uh, infer to mean disposable, and this is not that. Can anyone give, a, give me some insight as to why her clothes change color? Um, actually, it's funny that you brought up the color scheme because that is probably uh, one of the greatest um, motifs throughout the film. And in the hand of a weaker director, this could have been an annoying crutch in which to limp through 90 or 120 minutes. Um, one of the things, um, Tanya, my, uh, my partner is, um, is a Jungian and she brought up some interesting things. I was looking at it for more of a political thing the first time she and I watched this together and it took us four days to get through it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was looking at the reference to Le Hollandaise and the reference to, and again, I didn't know Greenaway at the time. He's a, he's a big fan of the Flemish Baroque. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these references to paintings and the fact that the, the the Dutch Republic was a bourgeois republic, had its own Ponzi schemes revolving around, of all things, tulips. And so I was trying to see parallels between – I didn't see it so much of a Thatcher thing. I think it's a, sort of like an omnipresent greed. And throughout the film, if you look at a, a Jungian or an alchemical sort of interpretation, talking about codes, uh, black has always been the uh, symbol for base – and a lot of the, the conflict in this film is not just between sex and eating. It's between the base and the divine, and mm-hmm. uh, which, again, in the olden-timey days when the Inquisition was knocking on people's doors, you had to speak in code. And so colors like um, – and apparently there's only four rooms in all of Britain. There's the, you know, there's the, uh, the dining room, which is in green, the, uh, which is in red, the kitchen, which is in green, the bathroom, which is in white, and the, the library, which is in gold. And outside, which is black, mm-hmm. or as Helen Mirren uh, or Georgina uh, corrects, slightly blue. Actually, just uh, as an aside, Spica is the name of a star, a giant blue star. Right, and we- he's, he seems very interested in astrology because we were going to see that again coming up in the next film. We're going to discuss Drowning by Numbers. But if I, I'm sorry to just take so much time. It's just that um, gold is the color of divinity, of um, Asper, uh, aspiring to transmutation, transformation. And the man who reads all the time, his name is Michael, which mm-hmm. is one who is like God in Hebrew for all our Hebrew friends. And so I look at this as more of sort of an, um, an allegory between the base and the divine. And um, the fact that uh, we start out in the bat, you know, the, this worse, horrible place where there's dogs and poop and pee and all of this sort of stuff. And they move there, they consummate their love in the library. Um, which is always done in a gold light, mm. they achieve a certain form of transfiguration uh, there. And um, yeah, again, uh, her, her costume always changes no matter where she, she is, but Spica's always in black. His sash changes yeah. room to room. And I, But I, one thing I do love about Peter Greenaway is that continuity means absolutely nothing to him. He just throws it out the window. He doesn't care. He even goes on to say a, a quote, famous quote from Greenaway is that he fa- finds it useless. Christina, you attended a Greenaway master class. I How did. was that? It was amazing. It, we, well, it was, it was relatively recently. So, I mean, we didn't, he didn't really speak about uh, his old films. He was more concerned with talking about the contemporary um, state of cinema, which mm-hmm. we could spend three hours talking about that. Because later on in his in his work, he goes on to do even crazier things, um, more multimedia, uh, incorporating lots of different styles of art. Within the two films that we're going to talk about, um, you can definitely see a director who is just uh, in love with art. Mm-hmm. Um, his films 
touch on everything from from painting, sculpture, architecture. He incorporates opera into his uh, films, uh, costume. I mean, it's just a, an amazingly visual and oral amazing uh-huh. uh it's uh, i don't know it's if, very theatrical well, and too. it's and it's very um wagnerian in the sense yeah. that that mm-hmm. he incorporate i mean you know wagner's uh, aesthetic term of gesamtkunstwerk where you have a total piece of art that incorporates all these different styles of art i mean you see it in peter greenaway films it's just it's just so lush and so rich and again i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to that accessibility um maybe what i was trying to get across eric was the fact that it's maybe the most linear of his films mm-hmm. but i can't I can't understand anybody not watching this uh, watching this film and not being visually like overwhelmed, mm-hmm. you know, and just and falling in love visually with what's going on and even orally what's going on. But you know, even put aside the visuals, the acting. Let's talk about the actors. Now, they exhibit a rare degree of courage to take on some of these roles. Absolutely. Uh, asked to do the things that they do, most actors would say no. Michael Gambon Can someone tell me has he been in any other huge films? Well, he's I- a theater actor. Okay. So he's very you know, over the top, verbose, very like theatrical. And I mean, you, you're right about him being um, taking like he's it's a very risky role to play. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no apologies in this character. He is just evil. Like there's there's nothing um, uh, you, you, you're trying to say something. Uh, you love no. to hate him. <laughs> well, but they're all established actors, too. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they're they're not just some young pups. They're people with a considerable background and heft and all of this behind them. And and Peter Greenway says, you know, I want to start the film off with somebody being uh, rubbed in excrement and peed on, and the fun's going to just go from there. And so Helen Mirren is uh, is a dynamo. Yeah, she's uh, fantastic. But, but the, the funny thing about uh, Spica is that he's always talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's always talking, and he goes up to uh, to Michael. At, and we actually first meet Michael. He's he's so enraptured in in his book that he his food falls off his, his fork. And so he's so enraptured in this world of ideas that sometimes he forgets to feed himself. And uh, Spica sort of is getting a bad vibe from him. And he says, "Maybe you're maybe you're always reading because you've got no one to talk to." But it seems like he purposely stages characters to stand in certain places and stand in certain positions. It's it's all it's it seems like everything's so calculated, it's so detailed. Yeah, well, it's a, I mean, again, you have your sculpture and uh, you know a lot of um, dance is incorporated mm-hmm. in a lot of his films. And uh, I think he did a lot of uh, television uh, a little bit before and subsequent to this. Um, but he's he's really I mean you know he's a he's a he's touched on everything and it really you can really see that in his work. Mm-hmm. Well, he also used I mean he's painterly in, in a good way, and he's uh, he's putting it seems to me he's putting every character in all of his in the middle ground of all of his favorite paintings somewhere. We have these odd characters who stand out. There's this washerwoman with blood in her hands all the time. There's this naked guy who is in the uh, the kitchen cutting up things. Uh, and they all sort of resemble, you know, sort of like the the id of the Western uh, of Western culture. They're just it's just there, and there's little codes that I'm sure even if we don't get it, he loves it. He plays games with an mm-hmm. audience, and 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 that's what I kind of appreciate about it. It's like there, it's definitely you have to watch it more than once to get them all. And with drowning by numbers, will oh, that, yeah. that'll that'll hit its peak. But um, he's he's using his own code, and it is. Um, there is continuity in it. It's consistent. It's its own world. It has its own rules. And it's nice to visit. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, I think, the beginnings of him trying to make these pieces that are a little bit more interactive. This is, I mean, this this film came out in 1990, a little bit before, um, you know, a little bit before um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the 
I guess I don't know their CD-ROMs and things like that, like in the in the '90s. But uh, you know the interactivity of things like the internet and uh, like he. I don't know if we're going to get to talk about it later, but I mean, there's so much going on that it really forces you into the piece. And like you said, I think we're going to talk about it more in the next film, Drowning by Numbers. Mm-hmm. But it's so engaging that it's there's sort of this play between between director and audience. It's really it's really amazing. Derek, the child, what does he represent, if anything? Um, well, again, using sort of uh, the things that uh, Greenaway is drawing from, he's a bit of the divine. Um, I, I actually think the cook is has a touch of the divine. He has an angel on his staff. He's an angel who sings uh, in this divine vo- uh, voice, um, wash me from iniquity. And as soon as the, uh, a spica gets close to him, he can't sing. His, his, he's ev- his, uh, he, Spica has the ability to draw everyone around him down. Mm. So he, he even robs the divine, you know, I'm just taking him as a cherub from a, you know, a Van Dyke painting or something. And so it's, it, I just think um, it definitely, you know, a bit of a continuity error if you're into realism in films. But it's, um, it's just one of the things that this kitchen attracts, little sparks of the divine working for the cook. Oh, and you want to talk about the divine. You mentioned before about um, changing of colors mm-hmm. from place to place, especially Georgina with that one scene where I think she she uh, meets Michael for the first time and she changes from red to white to green. And you can you can interpret that any way you like. Um, a really simple explanation is that we um, we you know, we adapt um you know, from person to person that we encounter or the, mm-hmm. the situations that we're in. The cook never changes. He's always the same. He's always in the same uh, color scheme. And you can tell, I mean, you know, about the divine, you can say, you, well, he's the creator, you know? Um, he's he's the clockmaker, but in the kitchen. Exactly. And he's not terribly, um, like, I mean, you know, he, he's... He's the, he's never raises his voice. He never argues with Spica, even though Spica has, you know, very strong... Um, views about certain things and he's always very soft spoken and he's just there exactly like the clockmaker mm-hmm. um but, right. but 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 the, the funny thing is is that Helen Mirren's entire outfit for the most part changes as she moves back and forth um whereas Spick and his men are all dressed in black they have little accoutrement that change mm-hmm. so i you could say that i mean Helen Mirren's character is somebody who is an adapt is adapting she's hanging out with a gangster mm-hmm. and we see that at the beginning when the smearing happens, and they're they're tre- you're basically extorting a man and and punishing him for not paying on time, and she's there smoking, about to go to dinner, and like she is an adapter, she is a survivor, and ultimately she's she's not going to quite make it to divinity. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, she she cannibal at the end. <laughs> <laughs> which which spoiler we, alert? Yeah, <laughs> we do have to wrap this up, so we are going to spoil spoil the ending. So I mean, I don't think it's really a big deal. I mean, the films there's so much going on in the film that. People should just sit down and watch it anyhow. But let's talk about the ending so we can wrap this up and move on to the next film. The ending contradicts the saying that revenge is a dish best served served cold. In fact, it's served warm. I think it's one of the greatest endings I've ever seen. Um, Comment on the ending. Um, uh, Derek? (laughs) Well, It's funny because um, Spica makes Michael eat books. Uh, he punishes him by feeding him his uh, his own world, mm-hmm. and Georgina responds in kind. She she makes him uh, feed off the corruption of the mortal world, again all using codes that are throughout Western civilization. So, and you know, so that that's what I like about it. it there's something, and again, and that's what the, the, a great filmmaker uh, inspires great 
debate, great arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the thing. If 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 there was if it, this just was a one shot, if this was something that only had one meaning, it wouldn't have the power it does. I'm latching on to the Jungian thing, but uh, I've read so many interpretations of it. Uh, all of them are valid. All of them are true. Some of them contradict each other. That's what great art is. 